This edition of the ER is brought to you by HSBC, winner of Trade Finance America's 2016 Company Award for Best Supply Chain Finance Bank in North America. HSBC, where ambition connects with opportunity. If Russia is out there hacking our system, what do we do about it? How do we stand up to that? Is this the beginning of a new era of countries meddling cyber-wise in other countries' elections? Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Washington today, and I'm joined by David Sanger, chief national security correspondent for The New York Times and author of Confront and Conceal, Obama's Secret Wars and Surprising Use of American Power. And a new guest that I'm pleased to welcome to the table is Kim Gaddis, who is with the BBC. She's covering the 2016 Clinton campaign and is the author of The Secretary, A Journey with Hillary Clinton from Beirut to the Heart of American Power. She was also previously based in Beirut, covering the Middle East for 10 years, and she writes frequently for foreign policy. Also, calling into the studio from Palo Alto is FP columnist Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. Thank you, ER nerds, for continuing to submit your best ideas for podcast episodes. We love hearing from you, so keep them coming. You can't believe I'm reading this, right? You know, we love it. Keep them coming. I, I really don't care. If you don't want to keep them coming, that's fine. We have more mugs for us if you don't. Anyway, you want a mug, you send in an idea. If it's a good idea, we send you a mug. If you don't get it after a few weeks, you send us a complaining tweet. It's fantastic. Drop us a line at the ER podcast at foreignpolicy.com if you have an idea or a comment. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. Welcome back to the ER. Recently, there was a CNN story that led in the following way. A series of high-profile breaches and warnings from national intelligence leaders has elections directors in critical battleground states seeking federal help against possible cyber attacks. Officials in Pennsylvania and Ohio tell CNN they're working closely with the Department of Homeland Security to protect their election systems from cyber attacks and breaches. Uh, Ohio went one step further. They've actually asked the National Guard to try and hack their system. And they were very happy because the National Guard identified some weaknesses. But I think we are just scratching the surface of a story that is going to grow bigger over each of the weeks leading up to the election. Because a question was posed. It was posed uh, in, in the New York Times and posed in consequence of a series of articles that David Sanger uh, was the leading contributor to. And it was that you don't have to hack the whole system to cause problems. You just have to plant a seed of doubt. And the question is, how big a seed of doubt planted in this election causes a constitutional crisis in the United States? And the secondary question, which is perhaps even more relevant to our listeners here on the ER, is if Russia is out there hacking our system, what do we do about it? How do we stand up to that? Is this the beginning of a new era of countries meddling cyber-wise in other countries' elections? Uh, and what does Russia have in mind here? Between this and their Manchurian candidate, Donald Trump, 
uh, we have a really, really extraordinary moment in the U.S.-Russia relationship. David Sanger, you've been covering this in depth. Where are we? Well, David, you raise very good questions. And whatever we're seeing in this election cycle, I suspect, is only going to grow bigger in future election cycles and not necessarily just with the Russians. Uh, It doesn't take much to build a cyber weapon of disruption. It's a lot easier than doing Olympic Games, the American action against Iran. It's a lot easier than doing what the Iranians in some ways did to the Saudi oil fields uh, or oil producers. So let me take your narrower question first, which is what kind of shape are we in against uh, hacking on the actual on, – on election day? And then go to your bigger question. So the biggest protection we have on election day is the fact that our election system is so antiquated and backward. This is a wonderful thing. We have 50 separate systems, uh, which means that anybody who wants to hack it has got to figure out each of the 50. Most of them, fortunately, are offline. The only people who really vote in an online system now are some uh, members of the military and some others who are outside uh, the country. So um, that's not a 100 percent guarantee, but it certainly helps. So that's the good news. What's so the bad good. news? We're backwards. Yes. Good. Let's celebrate. Backwards is, it's, you know, it used, people used to say the best thing about the American uh, flight control system was that it was so antiquated it was hard to hack. It was hard to get online. Okay. So consider that to be good unless you're landing at LaGuardia. Uh, okay. So what's the, what's the uh, bad news out of this? Five states in the country have no paper backup. So you can walk in and be voting on something that looks like an ATM machine and you'd like to know that there's a paper backup out there so that if all the records are lost or they're transmitted wrongly or somebody messes with the number, sooner or later you can do an audit. Don't try that in New Jersey. Don't try that in Georgia. Don't try that in Louisiana. Even Pennsylvania, which is a uh, obviously a, a big swing state, has only got very partial – backup, paper backup, and an audit trail. This is a problem that could make hanging chads in Florida look like a quaint analog problem, a little like, say, the office. <laughs> because of they're the kind FP. of a quaint analog. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> okay. Um, so that's, that's on the narrow end. On the broader question you're asking is, what could you do to deter this? Well, one of the first rules of cyber deterrence is you have to look at deterrence outside the cyber arena. There are things you could do, I imagine, of a cyber nature to the Russians. You could say to them, you know, look, if you want to mess with our system, be a shame if your um, the, the walls you've put up around your own internet got knocked down for a while and dissidents could begin to express their views uh, clearly in Russia. So there are things you could go do. But the fact of the matter is, if there is Russian interference, it'll probably be subtle. It'll probably be hard to prove. Here we are four months after the DNC hack and the U.S. government still has not come out and named the Russians even though the intelligence community has said they have high confidence it was in fact Russian. But it's the Russians. It's the Russians. It says it in Cyrillic. They're, they're like documents and they have Cyrillic on the documents, right? There is some Cyrillic on some of the documents they found that were edited later on. So I don't think there's a whole lot of doubt around here. So why is the government silent? Because they're making two calculations. One is, do you deal with Putin better quietly 
or do you deal with him better by getting us back up and accusing him of something that he's already denied doing? And the second big calculus they have to make is once you've declared it was Russia, then it's sort of incumbent on you to go declare what it is you're going to go do about it. And if they've decided that they're going to do nothing about it or they're going to do something about it covertly, they don't want to get themselves down that hole. Now, my personal opinion is that is not the right calculus. They should have called the Russians out on the hacks on the State Department and White House unclassified systems and the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and maybe we wouldn't be here, but it's a subject of continuing debate in the cyber world. Corey, this seems like an interesting twist from an international relations perspective. Yeah, the Russians are a weak and declining power, and they are playing a weak hand extraordinarily well. By neutralizing our superior power, with our inferiority of willingness to use it. Well put. That was very well put. That's almost BBC-like. So, wow. <laughs> what a If you compliment. can do it again with an accent, Corey, the BBC's <laughs> going to take you. <laughs> I, I really think, you know, what was the strength of the Soviet Union's education system? It was math and science. And so it's not surprising that one of the longest lingering positive attributes of Russian national security is that they're good at cyber. Um, and they have managed to capitalize on that to conduct repeated attacks on us, and we're not responding, which of course, right, like this, what the Russians are doing in cyber is actually a parallel to what the Russians are doing with their invasion of Ukraine, with the way that they have set boats rocking in the Baltic states, with their intervention in Syria. With their support of extreme right-wing groups in Europe. Yeah, that, that we in the West are far and away the stronger, more vibrant powers and what the Russians are showing is none of that matters because we're too timid to protect and advance our own interests. Well, that's quite interesting. And by the way, this is, you know, it, it, this is asymmetric power. This, you know, it's a different version of guerrillas in Vietnam fighting against more powerful U.S. force. It's a different version than the the, the terrorist case that, that we, we've seen before. The problem is that if you're a big, massive power— you don't have a lot of good tools to use against weak, smaller powers uh, that don't seem disproportionate. Kim, you've been covering the Clinton campaign during this. Are people in the Clinton campaign worried that all of a sudden you're going to have, after Election Day, some disruption and, 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 and all of a sudden this debate that inflames the Trump supporters? You know, that is definitely one of the potential black swans um, in this election. I remember in July when... Uh, the, there was the DNC hack. The concern, I mean, of course, we have to remember that, you know, Russia has a tradition of trying to interfere in, in elections. And they've certainly tried to interfere in the past in the US in, in one way or, or another, or at least shape um, opinion. What's different this time is the availability of, you know, cyber, cyber warfare, you know, the cyber sphere. 
And what happened with the DNC hack was that, you know, very often foreign countries will try to get a sense of the candidate, uh, the presidential candidates to get a sense of their policies, hack into systems to get access to information they wouldn't have otherwise about what potential policies these candidates would have. What was different with the DNC hack was that whoever did it, um, and we assume, of course, that it is the Russians, that they put that information back into the public sphere and watch the ripple effects of that. And that's what causes concern, because that is new and that is different for the United States. That is not something that this country has dealt with in in the past. And yes, if you end up in November with some kind of hack of even one state's system, it doesn't necessarily annul the whole result, but it sows distrust and confusion. And what's been fascinating for me as I cover this election is the the continued parallels that I find with a region that I know much better, which is the Middle East. I mean, we've had all sorts of uh, reminders of, of the Middle East, in, in my view, in this election, whether it's the kind of uh, allusions to violence in, in language by the candidates, whether it's um, the, the allusions to religion by candidates like Ted Cruz, uh, you know, the dynasties, you know, the Bushes and the Clintons, um, and now potential foreign interference. I mean, that is not something um, that I had expected to 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 be dealing with covering this election as I come from the Middle East. Well, the foreign member before we all go too far in this it is no, not. I'm going to the... go farther. Oh, I, okay. Well, then, particularly before you do that, David, <laughs> let's, let's remember it has not been beyond the United States in the course of post World War II history to occasionally muck in other countries' elections. Sure, but not. But it's different to have their own election. Right. Absolutely. But let's just remember here that, yes, this is a piece of information. So you don't don't believe in American exceptionalism? I do believe in American exceptionalism. The question here is, is anybody else being an exception? You don't don't think that we're a nation with higher virtue than others? Right. Well, I mean, that's precisely why I bring up the Middle East, right? Because the Middle East is rife with examples where the United States has meddled in one way or another. So the the overall concept, though, here, and it doesn't just apply to meddling in a cyber way with elections is that we have failed to establish a cost for cyber attacks in the United States. Exactly right. right? Whether it is stealing the uh, records of people with security clearances. When Corey wants to get a backup copy of her security clearance now, she calls the Chinese, right? Uh, (laughs) Whether it is um, stopping the Russians from what they have done. And some of the reasons that we don't do some of The North Koreans and The North Koreans against Sony. Some of the reasons that we don't do some of this is that we don't want to we don't want to sign on to norms that would limit us from what we can do abroad well another reason is that we don't want to use words that will force us into actions that might be uncomfortable. That's right. So if we call the North Korean hack vandalism, then it's not something that requires a security response, it requires a legal response. The US has often, you know, called other countries out on stuff that they've done that the US does as well. Oh, yeah. Well, no, but I mean, hypocrisy is a central tool of foreign policy. That, that, that's that's absolutely true. Now, But the other thing about cyber attacks is they're so hard to see and they're so hard to see in time. So try this thought experiment for a minute. Supposing that instead of doing the cyber attack on Sony that destroyed so much of their computing systems uh, in L.A., the uh, North Koreans had landed a, um, a raft at Long Beach 
beaten their way up through the traffic for 24 hours, commenting to themselves that they didn't realize there were this many cars in the world, right? Stuck some dynamite underneath the computer center at Sony and run like hell. Okay, If you had seen the image on CNN of their computer center burning, you bet the president of the United States would have been under pressure to take military action of some kind. But if you can do it from 5,000 miles away and leave nothing smoking, you get a very different reaction. And now we'll take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This edition of the ER is brought to you by HSBC. With over 8,000 global relationship managers on the ground in over 60 countries, HSBC makes your global ambition their local business. HSBC, where ambition connects with opportunity. Okay, so let's but let let's go. This this is a very important insight. But let's let's take it a great step imagery. further. Yeah, no, it's great. He's a, he paints pictures. He's kind of an artist. So let's 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 go, take it a step further. Um, we, we've we've got the cyber attacks and the potential of cyber attacks on election spaces. Another thing we have seen, we've mentioned it already, but everybody I know who's part of particularly the Clinton campaign expects it again, is WikiLeaks, which is you know a storefront for the Russian intelligence that periodically hands out documents to shape an argument uh, in the direction that the Russians want to have the arguments shaped. That is sort of Part two or the second pillar of the FSB plan for joining in on our election fund, is it not? It, it is, but it's not really cyber warfare. That's more like old-fashioned information warfare of the kind, as you noted before, we've seen in Europe and elsewhere. It's similar to tapping those phone calls and then broadcasting them as the American Assistant mm-hmm. Secretary of State talks to the U.S. ambassador uh, in Ukraine. No, no, it, it is. But I, I'm not – I mean I don't care whether it's called cyber warfare or not. What I care about is that the Russians are undertaking a multifaceted campaign that's to interfere in our elections. That, that's absolutely right. And, and you have heard very little on this from the president of the United States or anybody else in the administration in a public way. In fact – they have not even yet declared the election system to be critical infrastructure. Movie studios and movie theaters are considered critical infrastructure, okay? Uh, there are a lot of things that are, but the, the system that underpins our democracy is now, right now, not on the Department of Homeland Security's critical infrastructure list. Well, folks at DHS who are listening, seriously, that's a fairly easy one to fix. Uh, Corey, as you hear this, And now we have two prongs of potentially three prongs of this Russian multi-tiered intervention in our election. Um, What would you do if you were the president of the United States? Something I hope I live to see. You know, I think for the Russian strategy to remain successful, we have to continue to do nothing, to look ineffectual. And I thought David had a couple of fantastic suggestions at the start of this conversation about us putting a little top spin on the ball um, and and being asymmetric. Sorry, which David were you talking about, just to make this clear? Oh, I was talking about David Sanger from the New York Times. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I, I got to say, the pathetic pandering, the insecurity... <laughs> The human drama behind each episode of ER as you as you crave the positive feedback from our listeners oh. sitting there in their dorm rooms. 
wondering why the girl they saw in the cafeteria never called them back. (laughs) (laughs) To get back to the substance of this, I think there are three things that the president can and should be doing. The first is transparency is an asset and a fundamental element of liberal democracy. And we ought to stop treating it like it's a like it's just a weakness. It's also a strength. The president ought to draw attention to what the Russians are doing, to share what public information we can share, to discredit what the Russian government, how the Russian government is trying to pose itself, um, and to encourage fixes to our own networks that will diminish Russia's ability to do this. We shouldn't just be talking about it in security context and reading about it in the New York Times. The government actually ought also, we shouldn't make David pry this out of the Intel network. The president ought to be, you know, put having a public conversation about this. Retaliation? Which takes me to the second prong, which is, yes, we ought to be retaliating. We ought actually to, you know, the Russians are not 20 feet tall. They're not geniuses. They're not successful. We actually ought to be targeting, I don't know, Russian banks, maybe. Uh, How about focused on Putin and the guys around him in order to fire a shot across their bow? It seems like we the kind of sabotage that we were willing to practice against the Iranians, for example, but but we appear to be unwilling to practice in any other context, or at least in a context in which it would cause pain to the Russians. And the third thing is, um, we can have a non-cyber asymmetric response. We could be driving up the cost to the Russians to achieve things that they want to achieve in the world, in Syria, in the Russian Far East, in Central Asia, We have not been playing an anti-Russian game, but they have been playing an anti-Western game. And and we we could and should begin to drive up the cost to them for the other things they want to achieve. In addition to David's fantastic point, which is mostly what they're afraid of is losing hold on their own country. And we could be helping and encouraging them to believe they are doing so. So the third part of the FSB master plan, (laughs) Kim, might well be the fact that the Republican candidate for president has been compromised by ties to the Russians. And I have to say that when I speak to serious national security types from both parties, unflappable people by profession, they take these stories very seriously, that Trump had a big enterprise that couldn't borrow money in the United States, so they had to go overseas to find the money. They went to Russia. They found Russian oligarchs. Some of these guys were not good guys. Uh, Some of these guys had very close ties to Putin. And this got essentially Trump on the hook to a bunch of these Russians, which whom he remains tight, goes visits. Uh, has done business there, has businesses from the Trump Hotel in Toronto and others that have all sorts of ties to these characters. He has advisors with close ties to these characters. In fact, I would go further. I was talking to somebody today uh, who worked in a senior U.S. government agency, and 
they said that they did not think that if Donald Trump was nominated for some job in the U.S. government other than president, he could get a security clearance simply by cause of his ties and the way he's compromised to the Russians. Are you hearing that this is a serious issue? Because it seems to me the national security types care, but the public, not so much. It is actually interesting that the public doesn't care so much if if that is indeed the case. Perhaps uh, it's not getting into the news enough that this that this is uh, a concern. It is certainly a concern uh, for all the people that I've spoken to. And there's been a lot written about it as well. I mean, I don't know if it's part of a plan, but it certainly seems as though, as Mike Morell from uh, previous CIA official wrote in his, in his op-ed, that Mr. Trump has become an unwitting agent of Russian interests in the United States. And you raise um, several issues, including um, his ties to advisors, for example, just as we were going on air, there's a story that's come out about the activities of a Trump advisor, Carter Page, who has a lot of business interests in, in Russia. And there was a, con- a briefing on, by American officials on, on the Hill about Mr. Page's ties to, to Russia and the possibility that he's a conduit direct conduit to Mr. Trump. Now, the problem is that all of this is speculation. There's nothing black on white so far. Um, And so we can look at the overall picture and draw conclusions. I think Mr. Trump's tax returns uh, might be very helpful if he were ever to release them. Well, David, who has Mr. Trump's tax returns? There's rumors that Mitt Romney has them. But let's set that aside for a second. The IRS has Mr. Trump's tax returns. The IRS conceivably knows who he's on the hook with and who he's not on the hook with. Do they have some kind of responsibility to come clean with that information? Well, the tradition of the IRS and the law requires complete confidentiality of all tax returns, yours, mine, Kim's, and uh, Corey's, and Donald Trump's. And I think one of the big fears is that if you begin to change that in the midst even of a heated campaign, that you run into a significant issue. But you raise another big question, which is the person who becomes president of the United States is probably the only senior person in the U.S. government who's not subject to uh, a, um, a, a real review of their security clearances because by definition, by law, they become an, what's called an originating source for uh, classified material. And this poses a significant issue if you have serious questions either about Mr. Trump or his organization or uh, the people around him. Um, So far, what amazes me is that it tells you that we are so distant from memories of the Cold War that the Republican Party, which basically established itself as the anti-Soviet force in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, and and the 80s until the fall of the Berlin Wall, seems to be fundamentally unconcerned about having uh, their candidate be basically as friendly toward the Russian regime as I think I can ever recall an American candidate being. I wonder if that's because a lot of people in the United States seem to think that Mr. Trump is right when he says Vladimir Putin is a strong leader. And I think there He's are... He's certainly a strong, but that's not, your own, that's not your only measure of a good leader. No, right? but it does seem to be something that people nowadays are somehow, or a lot of people are, are yearning for. And if you're critical of President Obama and you think that he has 
you know, uh, been an isolationist who's retrenched on American power and presence in the world, and you look at Vladimir Putin, you think, yeah, there's a guy, there's a guy we should we should emulate. Not not to say that it's right or wrong, and people are entitled to their opinion, but I think that that's why the idea that Mr. Trump is potentially an unwitting agent of, of Mr. Putin isn't necessarily so jarring, particularly for, you know, young generations who don't have memories of the Cold War. Corey, you're a member of the party of Putin. I am not personally, but I uh, do take on the chin, as every Republican should, the disgrace that our candidate for president is actually the most pro-Russian pro-authoritarian, pro-corruption candidate in modern political history. It's disgraceful. I cede you the argument, David. Well, I have to tell you, you're not perhaps on the cutting edge of American politics. Uh, As people listen to this, must imagine, we tape it. It It's an old-fashioned term. We record it. And so as we're sitting here doing this, a story has broken the wire, which is apparently causing a lot of buzz on the Internet. The story goes like this. This is a quote. At first I thought, oh my God, I'm so Hillary. But I had a long political call with Caitlin last night about why she's voting Trump, Kim Kardashian said in a cover story in Wonderland magazine. So now I'm on the fence. So Kim Kardashian is considering going from Hillary, with whom she posed with Kanye in a famous selfie, and considering voting for Trump. Ted Cruz has switched over to voting for Trump. This is your last chance, Corey. (laughs) You live in California and your name begins with a K. Yeah. um, Wow. That's a comparison. I would just like to stop dead in its tracks there. And and no, I'm not doing it. And and nobody else should either. It's a good uh, uh, it's a good place to end. A last word from Corey. Thank you very much. Uh, you've restored my faith in California. Um, Kim, <laughs> thank you for joining us. David, thank you again for joining us. Listeners, thank you for joining us. Join us again next week as we will probably be broadcast in Russian, just completing the FSB's complete takeover of what really matters in American elections uh, because the editor's roundtable is central to our national deliberative process. See you again then. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe to this and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.